0: Well, this morning um, Matt gave me the wonderful chapter seven of Nehemiah, and Kevin was happy that I got it. I'm not going to read this whole chapter. I could, and I can pronounce every word perfectly, every name. Tell Talhar- Harsha. See, there's an example. Tel Harsha. Um Hagabah. There's about a hundred and there's some 400 words or something names here. I'm not going to read them all, but I want to do is I want to read, um, beginning in verse five of Nehemiah seven, and I'm going to read a few texts there and then I'm going to jump down a little later in the chapter. So Nehemiah seven verse five, and I want you to notice the very first words, then my God put it into my heart. Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first. And I found written in it. And then he begins to list the names. Now what he's doing is he's reading the exact same genealogy that is in Ezra chapter 2. And it's the same genealogy that Zerubbabel wrote down 90 some years before. And Nehemiah is now reading it. And I'm going to tell you why he reads it in a few moments. But then if you jump down to verse 61, it says the following were those who came up from Tel Mala, Tel Harsha, Cherub. Adon and Immer, but they could not prove their father's houses nor their descent, whether they belonged to Israel. So there were some now who were among them that couldn't prove that they were truly Israelites by their genealogy. The sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda, and also priests, the son of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who had taken, sounds Italian, who had taken a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was called by their name. They sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there. So now listen, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them they were not to partake of the most holy food until the priest with the Urim and the Thumen should arise. So some were not allowed to be counted as among the true Israelites. I'll tell you why that's so significant in a couple of moments as well. And then if you jump all the way down to verse 73, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all of Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Father, we pray for this time together this morning that uh, this text of Nehemiah 7 would speak to us. Your heart, Lord. Lord in your mind, and that you would strengthen your church and encourage your church today. And we thank you for your word, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. This is an odd chapter in that it seems to be primarily just a genealogy. And not only that, as I said a moment ago, it is the exact same genealogy as in Ezra chapter 2. So you're thinking, why is this here? Is this a mistake? Was this something that... uh, Why was this included now in the book of Nehemiah? I'll be honest, when I started reading this to prepare to study, I went, okay, Lord, what is this all about? We know that all Scripture is God-breathed and that it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul told Timothy that. So we know that nothing in Scripture is there for just no reason. There's a purpose that God has wanted this to be part of the canon of Scripture, that this is included in Nehemiah's writings and Nehemiah's records, and that the Holy Spirit has guarded this text for centuries so that we would now today in 2022 read it and not just skip over it and go to chapter 8, which is much more interesting in some ways. And I asked myself this week, Holy Spirit, what do you have us to glean from this text today? What will lead us to a deeper love and devotion to Jesus Christ? Because I know that that's the heart of the Father, that's the heart of the Spirit, is that the Lord Jesus would be glorified. And I want to tell you that as I prayed about this and I thought about it, my sense was that it is tied to the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem that what God wants to speak to us is tied to the city of Jerusalem. Now hear me, not the earthly city, but the heavenly city. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah, as we've been teaching through them the last few months, we've said to you again and again are about restoration, the restoration of that which had been lost, but the restoration in a greater sense of that which identified God's people from all of the other nations, God's Israel, his nation. And we know that in the beginning, Zerubbabel, under his ministry in the book of Ezra, the altar was restored. First thing. And what does the altar represent? Worship. And then the law was restored to their hearts and to their minds, which we know that represented the covenant that God had made with Israel, God's ethics for their lives. And then we know the temple was restored. In Ezra 4, the altar is restored and the temple's foundation is laid. And sacrifice was once again able to be made when the temple was finally built, which represents what? We know so easily, clearly, redemption and atonement for sin for God's people. And then finally, under the ministry and the work of Nehemiah, the walls of the city were restored. These broken, burnt stones built again into a wall that would guard and protect the city. What did the walls represent? The separation from the other nations, which gave identity to God's people. In other words, listen, holiness. Worship, covenant, redemption, Holiness. Say those four things. Worship, covenant, redemption, holiness. Again, worship, covenant, redemption, holiness. Four great truths that are represented in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah that are restored to a people. But I have to say, and we all know this to be true, that it wasn't just for that people. It was ultimately for us. The New Testament writers knew very well that these truths and these works by these men in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were just shadows, images of deeper truths. As they meditated and prayed upon the work of Jesus Christ, they began to understand that, oh, now I see what they were meaning and representing. The writer of the book of Hebrews said in a letter regarding the work of the priests in Hebrews chapter 8, he said, listen, they serve a copy, talking of the priests, they serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to enter the tent, he was instructed by God saying, make sure that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Because he wanted him to be so careful to build it exactly as he had ordained it to be. Because it was only a a shadow of a greater truth. Of an eternal ultimate truth. And so the New Testament writers knew that these things in the Old Testament that were so fought for and so prayed for and so earnestly desired and sought after and that took great work and energy for hundreds of years were just shadows and copies of something deeper and more eternal In 9.23 of Hebrews, the writer says it again. He goes, So it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But listen, but the heavenly things had to be purified with a better sacrifice than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with human hands, which are copies of the true things, but he entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So even the tabernacle and even the altar and and even the, the, the walls and all of the things that Ezra and Nehemiah fought for and Zerubbabel fought for were just shadows, copies, partial truths of something eternally true and something yet to be fully revealed. It's beautiful. So if the altar and the temple and the tabernacle are just copies, if they're just shadows of what is true, is not it also true that the city of Jerusalem itself is a shadow of something greater? Listen, of something truer? And the answer, of course, that's a rhetorical question, is yes. And so I've entitled my teaching this morning, Mount Zion, the City of God. Because this is all about Jerusalem in Nehemiah, but it's about earthly Jerusalem. I had the fortunate uh, opportunity to be in Israel uh, three or four years ago. And I was fortunate because I was able to see Israel not as a, in a tour, but as a person who would maybe be living there. And I actually was able to spend the night in the old city of Jerusalem, in a beautiful little hotel right by the one of the gates. And then I preached the following morning in a Arab-speaking church, Christian church in the old city of Jerusalem. And it was so wonderful to be there and to, to look upon the city and to go up to the Mount of Olives and to look at the temple and the mount and to see the city and the walls and to see probably where Jesus had entered the city at times and... It was just, it's an amazing thing. But I want to say to you, as I stood before the wailing wall, and I probably told the church this when I came back, as I stood before the wailing wall watching the Jews stand there and, and wail as they prayed and all of the gyrations that they went through in their devotion, I thought, how far they are from the truth. Because they were only as close to what they knew to be where the temple was as that wall. And I thought, I'm standing right next to you, and I'm the temple of God now. And you don't understand that or know that. And so what we've fallen into, even in 21st century, Christianity is a romanticism of the old city, the city of Jerusalem. And I I love the city of Jerusalem. I'm thankful if I was able to go there. But the city of Jerusalem is just a shadow of something greater of something true, of truer. What does the city of Jerusalem foreshadow? What is it a copy of? What is it a copy of that is truer? What is it a copy of that is of God and not made with human hands? It's obvious from reading Scripture, such as Hebrews, that what is of man is not sufficient to satisfy the heart of God. What is man-made can never satisfy God's heart and it can never ultimately represent God's heart and his perfect wisdom and his perfect plan. It's only just a shadow. It's like if one of your kids built an incredible Lego set of a city I mean, it could be so beautifully done and made and time and energy and intricacy involved in it. It's just an image of something that's true. And in a few months, it'll end up in a box or you'll step on it. And and, yeah. What is the city foreshadow? Well, Hebrews 11, 8 through 10 Gives us a clue, and I've got this a slide for this. And I'm reading out of the New Living Translation. This is Hebrews 11, 8 through 10. And it says, This it was by faith that Abraham now listen to these words that Abraham obeyed when God, God called him to leave home and go to another land that God would give him as his inheritance. And he went without knowing where he was going. And even when he reached the land that God had promised him, he lived there by faith for he was living like a foreigner, living in a tent. Even when he got to the land, he still lived by faith as though he had not yet reached the land. And so did Isaac and Jacob, who inherited the very same promises did Abraham. Because Abraham was confidently looking forward to a city, listen, with eternal foundations, a city designed and built by God. I love that text. That's one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. For I love it for so many reasons. I love it, first of all, because of Abraham's faith. Something had been dropped into the heart of Abraham to where he knew there was something more. There was something better. There was something eternal that he did not find even when he entered the land. And after all that it had cost him. And he put that same thing in the heart of his sons and their sons. It became a promise of God. God. I'm blown away by these men and women of faith who lived in the Old Testament. Hebrews 11 has a, a, a whole chapter dedicated to these people who followed God, and they did not know what we know. But they lived by faith because God had put something in their heart of an eternal hunger for something that was truer, truer than what they knew. It's an incredible reality. We're talking about earthly Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter 7. Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls, and now all of a sudden, he just has this put in his heart by God. We read that in verse 4, that God put it in my heart, he says. Why did God put this in his heart to read the genealogy? Because the goal was not simply to rebuild the walls. The goal was greater. Yes, the goal was beyond what Nehemiah had already seen and done. And Nehemiah, like all of the men and women of faith, came to realize, this ain't it. This is good, but this ain't it. Brothers and sisters, you and I know what that is. You and I have been called to live in it, to see it, to understand it, to love it, to give our whole life to it. Paul develops this thought in Galatians chapter 4 and he he takes the thought of Mount Sinai which represents an earthly Jerusalem in in, in Egypt and he equates it to the place of, listen, slavery. Now listen to these words. This is also the New Living Translation. I like the New Living Translation. It's very accurate and it's very clear. Sometimes I just use it in my own devotion. But listen to what it says in Galatians chapter 4. There's a slide for this as well. He says, Tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you not know what the law actually says? That the scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from a slave wife and one from his freeborn wife. The son of the slave wife was born in a human, listen to the language, in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment Of his promise. These two women, he says, serve as an allegory or an illustration of God's two covenants. The first woman, Hagar, represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children, listen to Paul, she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman and she is our mother. Are you following this? The writer to the Hebrews, Paul, they're praying, they're meditating, they're, they're not just going through life, they're delving into the scriptures and are saying, God, speak to me, Father, about the redemptive work of Christ and how you have already foreshadowed this throughout the ages. And then they read the Old Testament text and they go, yes, I understand. Even now I understand that Jerusalem represents something, Father, that is earthly, that is human, man-made, and that ultimately it represents slavery to religion as opposed to the promise that only you can bring about. So Paul tells us that earthly Jerusalem represents slavery to the law. It represents the first covenant God made with Israel, a covenant that they broke again and again and again and again, because they tried to do what? Bring about the fulfillment of the promise through their own efforts. It was an earthly, earthly city, the earthly Jerusalem. It was man's creation. It's a beautiful city. It's an incredible city. The walls are amazing. The gates are beautiful. The streets are beautiful. It's earthly and man-made. And the text in Hebrews tells us that Abraham understood that. He was not looking for an earthly inheritance. Can I say that again to you? Listen to this with your hearts. He was not looking for an earthly inheritance. He was looking for an inheritance that was eternal. Because he wasn't satisfied with an earthly temporal city. Can you imagine that? You get to the land... And you have your family, and you finally arrived, and you go, pitch a tent. And they're going, what? This is it. Why don't we build this? No, this, pitch a tent. We're going to keep living in a tent. Sarah's going, no. He goes, yes. And she probably said, why? And he probably said, I'm not sure. But I just know that there's something else. It's in me. It's in my heart. I love that. He was looking for a heavenly city whose architect and builder, he says, in Hebrews 11, was God. The earthly city of Jerusalem was not and is not the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to Abraham. And I believe Nehemiah understood that we romanticize that city today. In the Christian church, we romanticize the nation of Israel. You are the true Israel. Now, is the church of Jesus Christ. I'm not, that's not to say that God is finished with the nation of Israel. He is not. But it is not going to play out as we have all thought, perhaps. You are the Israel of God. And that earthly city only represented something that was man-made, and it still does. And it still represents a place of slavery. And what I'm saying is an abomination to many Christians right now. And it's because of the difference in theology of how we understand these things. And that's okay, we can differ. And there's room for us to see things and grow. And I have to tell you, it's taken me many years to come to where I am this morning as I preach this to you. And it has to do with eschatology, what I believe about the last days, and biblical theology, how I see all of Scripture. We're still brothers, those who disagree with me. But this is important for us because it propels us to live a life in a different way, hopefully. Hopefully. Nehemiah knew that this was not the promise, the fulfillment of the promise. So that's why he was intent on bringing to their remembrance those who had come out of exile with Zerubbabel almost a hundred years before. It's almost as though God's saying to him, remind them of whose shoulders they stand on. God put it into my heart to assemble the people, he said, and to to be enrolled by genealogy, to read the genealogy, and then to re-enroll them by genealogy. God put it into his heart to search out the book of Zerubbabel and to find the listing of that first people that came out of Babylon to once again establish the city of Jerusalem. They were pioneers. They had great faith. They had faith to venture out of a very wonderful life, probably in Babylon in many ways. A luxurious life, perhaps, a comfortable life, a familiar life most of them having been born in Babylon during captivity. They were not the ones who first were taken into captivity. It was the sons and grandsons and daughters of those that had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar into captivity. They were pioneers. They were men and women and children who had left security and ease of life in pursuit of God's plan, in pursuit of God's will. Even though they didn't fully know what it was. Let me say, you may not know fully what God's will. You will not know it. It's a matter of following God often day by day. But it has to be in your heart as we sang a few moments ago to to build our lives upon the word of God and to follow God. Even when it isn't clear where you may be heading, there's something in your heart and you go, No, Lord, I know there's more to life than this. An earthly inheritance, thank you. But Father, it is not But my heart longs for. My heart longs for something greater in you. And I'm sure that those people that first left Babylon and went to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel were not always strong. We know they weren't. We have an account of it in Ezra. They got burned out and they got afraid and they quit building. And they had to have Haggai come along and spank them. And other prophets, keep going, keep going. But God, listen, God saw them. And God knew their hearts and he honors them now with the reading of this genealogy under Nehemiah. And it's almost as though Nehemiah is reminding them of this great cloud of witnesses whose shoulders they now stood upon. Hebrews 12.1 speaks of this same truth for us today. Following on the heels of that great chapter 11 that gives the amazing faith of all of the men and women in the Old Testament who lived their lives by faith, not knowing fully where they were going, not knowing fully what God was going to do, not understanding the plan of God with the clarity that you and I have. They lived their lives by faith and they died in faith, never having fully realized it or seen it. Hebrews 11 tells us. And some of them died horrible deaths because of that faith. And yet they continued in faith. And so God honors them in the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 11. And so chapter 12 verse 1 reminds us of this. And it says in Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses to the life of faith, Let us strip off every weight that slows us down and especially the sin that so easily trips us up and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. And I ask myself this question, whose shoulders do I stand on today in my faith? Are we aware of those that have gone before us forging a way for you and I in a faith that we so often take for granted so easily? The great price that was paid by men and women, many of them young, dying in faith, some of them. And I ask myself this question. Will others stand on my shoulders someday because of my faith? And my prayer is, yes, I hope it will, Lord. I hope my kids, my grandchildren, I hope you, I hope others that I've had the privilege of ministering to and preaching to for the years that I have will one day stand on my shoulders because of the things that I have preached and be strong because of it. And I pray that God will remember me because of it. This is what the Christian life is. It's a long endurance in the same direction by the grace of God. But it's motivated out of a deep love for him because of who he is and what he has done for us. The Hebrews writer says that this is the motivation for us to live rightly. And to endure in this long race that God has set before us. Notice that God has set this before us just as He did with Nehemiah, just as He did with the other prophets, and just as He did with the people of Jerusalem, God is the one who sets the race before us. and I thought about this the earthly city had to survive. You see the problem was with Nehemiah in his time was that everybody was living in towns outside the city. there were very few people living in the city because the walls have been broken down, and it's harder to live in that city in a close proximity than it would be to live out in the country in the suburbs where you have all kinds of space and opportunity. And so the city was very, very smallly occupied and most of the people were in towns outside the city. And what Nehemiah was trying to do was regather people back into the city because the city had to be protected. It had to be defended. It had to be rebuilt And I prayed and thought about that this week as well. And I thought this this earthly Jerusalem had to survive. It could not go away. It couldn't just cease to exist. It had to survive because of what it would represent. And it had to survive because it would become the seat of Jesus' redemptive acts. It's where Jesus would die. He could have died anywhere. But Jerusalem represented the promise. The earthly Jerusalem was a shadow of a heavenly promise, and it had to survive. Are you with me? It's really clear, and I'm almost going to wrap it up here. It becomes very clear that the prophets did not recognize that the work of Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah were the fulfillment of the promise either. The prophets knew, no, this ain't it either. Prophets like Zechariah continued to announce a still future return even after they had returned. You can read that in ch- chapters 10 and 12 of Zechariah. They're beautiful chapters of him speaking of what's coming even after they had already arrived. Why? Because he knew that wasn't it. Heaven, you see, the earthly city was never the goal. The heavenly city was. And it's very interesting in Nehemiah 7, verse 64, you can compare that to Revelation 21 and Revelation 22. Look at verse 64 again of Nehemiah 7. After the genealogy is read and after they have re-enrolled them, according to genealogy, it says in verse 64, some people sought, these men sought their registration Among those enrolled in the genealogies, but it was not found there, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. And the governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food. Now look with me at Revelation 21. Let's just look at it for a moment. Revelation 21 is speaking of the new Jerusalem. A new heaven and a new earth, verse 1. In verse 2, and I saw the holy city. Which holy city, John? Earthly Jerusalem? No. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That's the city that Abraham was looking for. But then it goes on as it describes this beautiful city and what the Lord speaks to him regarding the city. And it says in verse 8 of Revelation 21, but as for the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable, as for murderers and the sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur which is the second death. They weren't allowed to enter the city. Go with to chapter 22. Actually, if you go down to verse 26 of chapter 21 first. Verse 26 of 21. They will bring into it the new Jerusalem, their glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does not who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the lamb's genealogy <laughs> are you a part of the lamb's genealogy now go to chapter 22 verses 14 and 15 blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right of the tree of life and that they may enter the city. What city, John? The New Jerusalem, by its gates. You see, outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So even in Nehemiah's day, he wouldn't let certain ones in because they weren't really verified as being holy in the sense that they needed to be of the true genealogy. It's really clear to me that Nehemiah chapter 7 is a foreshadow of Revelation 21 and 22. And it is describing and looking to the new Jerusalem, the city of God. Nehemiah 7 is a foreshadowing of of the new Jerusalem. It's all about earthly Jerusalem. It's all about walls and genealogies and names. But it's really looking towards something that's truer. And I want to close by reading Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. If you turn there with me. I do think we have a slide for this. If you don't have a Bible, I'm reading out of the ESV in this text. I'm going to put this all together in your minds here in just a second. Hebrews 12, 18 through 29. Incredible text, incredible, wisdom, incredible revelation by God for this writing. For you have not come to what may be touched, A physical mountain, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice of whose words may the hearers beg that no further message be spoken. He's speaking of Moses and the Mount Sinai and the ropes around the, the mountain and the, that don't touch the mountain, that chapter, and even when the animals touched it, they died, and you better not go touch the mountain. He's saying, you've not come to that. That's a physical mountain. That's an earthly mountain. He said, that was only a picture of something greater. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it would be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you... You, we, have come to Mount Zion and to the the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Notice the emphasis of this text. The assembly of the firstborn in festal gathering is what? Worship. Jesus, the mediator of what? A new covenant. The sprinkled blood, speaking of what? Redemption. The spirits of righteous men made perfect, speaking of what? Holiness. The same four words that we found in the beginning of of Nehemiah chapter 7. Worship, covenant, redemption, holiness. Worship, covenant, redemption, holiness. This is the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What Nehemiah and Zerubbabel and Ezra came to restore was worship, covenant, redemption, and holiness. And now in Hebrews 12, those are all found in the city, the new city, the heavenly city, Jerusalem. This is what this life is all about for us, brothers and sisters. This is what the church is and why it exists. It's not something we add to our life on Sundays. It's not something we try to work into our schedule. The church is the gathering of the people of God who understand these deep truths of what life is really about, who live by faith in a fallen world and who walk a narrow path that no one else will walk, who are willing to pay a price, to find what true life is in Christ. This is what this life is about. The church is not only the bride of Christ, but it is also the new Jerusalem of God on the new earth. This is one of the reasons why the eschatology that says that Jesus is returning to earthly Jerusalem and going to reign for a thousand years in earthly Jerusalem is so out of whack. The, new Jer- the, the earthly city of Jerusalem was a place of slavery. How much clearer is the New Testament could it be than that to say, no, that's not the goal. The goal is the heavenly city. Why would he come to that city? We are the new Jerusalem. Revelation 21 describes the new Jerusalem and the new creation of God. That which Abraham was looking for. That which Nehemiah knew was greater. That which, which the earthly city that he had rebuilt, it was greater than that earthly city. That which Zechariah and the other prophets had seen. And we know from Scripture that that new Jerusalem will be the eternal dwelling place of God with man on the new earth. We lose our motivation so easily in the Christian life because it's not easy, and we have so many distractions. And we are so busy. And the world and the spirit of the age is so powerful. It's such a battle. So what I'm preaching to you and saying to you this morning, may it grip your heart. May you just remember it somehow. It's more than this. It's more than this. Everything that the old foreshadowed is yours and mine now. Peter writes and said, man, even the angels longed to look into these truths because they didn't even understand them when they were taking place in the Old Testament. And now they do. There will not be any new scripture written, thank God. But with the old, what has been written, you have only just begun to mine it. There is so much revelation here to teach us the heart and the will and the mind of God. If we would take time, if we take the time to meditate upon it, to read it, and to wait upon God and to say, Lord, teach me. And make this the simple prayer, Lord Jesus, may I see you in this. Holy Spirit, glorify the Lamb of God for me. Brothers and sisters, run the race that is set before you. Run it with endurance. Run it with faith. Thank God for the shoulders of the men and women that have gone before you. I, I just encourage you to learn some church history. Just buy a book, read something online, listen to some tapes, whatever it is, no, not tapes, listen to, something, <laughs> listen to something online. Take a class online of church history and begin to appreciate what other men and women before you have done and the price that they've paid. And now because of their faith where you are, Amen. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to take communion together. We're going to thank God for this beautiful covenant and. <clears throat> Such wisdom, Father. Such wisdom, Lord. The wise of the earth will never understand this wisdom. You've made it so that the young, even the young children in faith could understand it. It's wisdom from heaven. It's wisdom from God. It's your wisdom, Lord, of what this is really all about, this life and this walk and this world we live in. Pray for us today, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would just impart grace to us to live the life the way that you've called us to. I ask that as we prepare our hearts right now to take communion together, that you would wash us again, deal with any shame that we might have and any condemnation because of sin. Wash our conscience clean, Lord, by your blood again. Restore joy to us, the joy of our salvation, Lord. Let's just receive forgiveness right now from the Lord, okay? Just take a minute. If you are conscious of sin that you've committed, confess it before God right now and receive forgiveness. Purpose in your heart to turn from it. Yes, Lord. I might have purposed to A hundred times before, Lord, you know my heart. Cleanse me and heal me and free me, Lord, I pray. Thank you, Father. I want to invite you to the table. It is the table of remembrance of the covenant of God.